1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Nioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? Never, John replied. Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon festival and I am supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? Then continuing at verse 24, so David hid in the field, and when the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. 
I am not sure if it is popular in the US, but in Britain, they have this documentary series that began in 1964. At that time, it was called Seven Up. And then every seven years, they went back to the same people, seven years old, 14 years old, 21, and so on. And they looked at whether or not where you were at or how you were shaped at seven through the socioeconomic situation and family group you were in affected you for the rest of your uh, rest of your upbringing. And it was based on this Aristotelian saying, which goes something like this. Give me a child until he's seven, and I will show you the man. Now, in today's text, we're looking at the threefold trajectory of three main protagonists. We're looking at Saul and David and Jonathan. And what we see in this text is actually a foretaste of their futures. Saul is currently king, but he knows his days are numbered. David is anointed to be king, but he's being treated as the most wanted of criminals in the land. And Jonathan is the heir apparent, forced to choose between friend and family. And we're going to look at these three men as they are in our text and how they end up at the foretaste and the trajectory of their lives. We're going to look at Saul's self-preservation obsession, David's leaning into his calling, and Jonathan's sacrificing for his calling. So let's begin with Saul. Saul's preservation obsession. Now we need a little bit of background for the story. David's fame at this point is increasing. He's a good-looking guy, he's a musician, he's a champion warrior, everybody's hero. Saul's getting jealous. Jonathan warns David in the previous chapter, my dad's getting jealous, and they talk a little bit about it, and uh, Jonathan goes back to Saul, and he talks Saul out of killing David. Uh, and he explains to David that, that uh, to Saul that David's good for you. Look what David's doing. He killed Goliath. He's killing these Philistines. He's good for Israel. He's good for your, uh, for your king, for you being king. And Saul makes an oath with Jonathan before God at that point not to kill David. Then, of course, David goes on as a, as a general, as a commander, to be more successful. And he becomes the theme of the number one hit in Jerusalem of the time, which goes something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul becomes even more jealous, more upset. And Saul violates his oath, and he sends people to kill David in his bed, in his home, with his wife Micah. But Micah finds out and helps David to escape down out of a window. So that happened in chapter 19. Now David's on the run. He's afraid that Saul's going to kill him. And by the time we get to the beginning of chapter 20, Saul knows that God is going to strip him of his kingdom. He may or may not know that David is the anointed king, because that did happen in, uh, behind the scenes, so to speak. But Saul uh, at least perceives David as a threat, because David is the Goliath killer, the Philistine killer, the, the famous army general, and is becoming more and more popular. But Saul doesn't trust David to honor God. So David knows he's a target of Saul's jealousy. 
And then we get to the incident in our passage, which is later in the passage where they've been invited to the feast, and David goes missing. He's not sitting in his seat. And sees, Saul sees that the chair is empty, and Jonathan, when he's asked about it, says that he's given permission for, for David to be elsewhere. And I'm going to read you Saul's response. He goes ballistic. He erupts. He gets really, really upset in verses 30 and 31. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't you know you were sided with the son of Jesse? To your own shame, to the shame of the mother who bore you. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Now, if we read between the lines here, Saul is saying to Jonathan, overtly you're throwing away your inheritance but what he's also saying is you're throwing away my crown my name my inheritance and if we look most closely he says you chose david over me or if we read between the lines you chose yahweh's story which writes us out of the line of kings over my story over our story and that's the foretaste that we see of Saul's behavior. And thus begins what is effectively a tragic obsession by Saul to try to hold on to his kingdom. An obsession that appears to lead to the end of his lineage. You see, by chasing David out of town, by pushing his most strong and capable commander and the mighty men that follow David away, he alienates David he goes on the run, his fighting are no longer available, and eventually Saul is killed in battle with all of his sons, including Jonathan, with the Philistines. Now, who knows what would have happened had David and his men been present at the time. But what we do know is this tragic obsession by Saul, this spiral into self-preservation, means that Saul's line or name appears to be cut off. It's the ultimate shame. There is no history. There is no legacy. There is no greatness associated here with Saul. Now, before we're too hard on Saul, tragic obsessions. Are you obsessed with making a name for yourself, protecting your reputation, building your kingdom? Or perhaps maybe more profoundly, do you even know the difference between faithfulness and self-indulgence? What matters more to you, outcomes or behaviours? Do you cut the corners of covenant obedience for the sake of expediency or self-promotion or self-preservation? Are you willing or are you willing to sit in prayer, word, dialogue with God while he dismantles those idols for you and with you? Which is it? Are you humbly in submission or are you running amok like Saul? So you move on to David. David's desperate. We're going to look at David leaning into his calling. He's desperate. He's on the run and his life is under threat. He's also popular. He's the man of the hour, the killer of Goliath, the destroyer of Philistine armies and the hero of songs. He's been anointed by Yahweh to be king through the great prophet Samuel and he knows it. He shouldn't be scared and he shouldn't be on the run. He's a national treasure 
that's being treated like a national scoundrel. And if anyone has the right, you would think, to cut covenant quarters of corners of obedience for the sake of expediency, surely, surely it would be David. Wouldn't now be a good time for a coup? Rob, where's Rob Ananucci? Iris, you can answer this question. Can you tell me of any Afghan warlord that wouldn't take the strategic advantage and play to his strengths? It's what we do. It's how the world works. You play to your strengths. You claim what you're entitled to. You build your kingdom and you justify it any way you can. But this is not what David does. He goes to Goliath. And believe me, this is not an easy conversation. Let's track through this conversation. Sorry, not to Goliath, to, to Jonathan. And it's not an easy conversation. Verse 1, David says, Your dad wants to kill me. Jonathan replies, You're paranoid. Dad and me are tight. David responds, Your dad knows we're tight. That's why he's not telling you. And then David outlines a plan for Jonathan to test Saul's heart towards David. And then David throws himself on the covenant faithfulness of Jonathan to respond. Now imagine that. This is someone who believes that his father is faithful. He has a close relationship with him. And a friend comes and says, your dad wants to kill me. Now I'm going to read verse 8 because it's really an important verse here. As for you, show kindness to your servant. This is David talking to Jonathan. As for you, show kindness to your servant. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, he's saying to Jonathan, then kill me as yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Now that word kindness, is Ashley in the room anywhere? You know what that word is, Ashley? I think it's your favorite Hebrew word. It is hesed indeed. And hesed means more than kindness. It gets watered down uh, as we translate it in English. It really means covenant faithfulness or following the covenant principles of the living God or living out the values of God. That word hesed is big and powerful and is often used to sum up the emotional content of the covenant God has with us. Now David here trusts Yahweh by trusting Jonathan's behavior will eventually mirror or will mirror God's values of kindness, of covenant faithfulness, of chesed, because they have a godly friendship, a godly friendship. Jonathan is Saul's son. He's close to his father. He's next in line to be king. By the standard of the times, David should have killed Jonathan, or Jonathan should have killed David. There's no place for Hesed here. Time to make things happen, not trust in God's values. Both these men should be taking things into their own hands. This is, uh, this is what we see here, is not the way of the world. This is radical faithfulness on David's part to trust Jonathan. And as we'll see next, on Jonathan's part to trust David. They're willing to wait, to lean in to God's faithfulness, to allow God to work the timing, rather than to act expediently to get what they want. Now, that's the foretaste of David's life that we see in this passage. And David lives like this for the rest of his life. As Samuel anoints him to be the next king, which we read about uh, way back as we were doing this series, it's another 32 years before he actually becomes king. 
Now, David waits that 32 years, and during that time, Saul hunts him down. Saul hunts him down relentlessly. And David has multiple opportunities to actually kill Saul, but he chooses not to. And there's a famous example of this in just a few chapters' time, in chapter 24, where David is actually on the run. Saul has uh, finished a battle, and on his way home, he hears that he's in these areas with the caves, and the men, Saul says, will get him. We'll go capture him. David's hiding out in a cave. Saul comes in to do a pee. And David walks up behind him. And the men, David's fighting men, said, Here it is. Here's the chance you've been waiting for. God told you that this was coming. You can act expediently now. You can take out Saul. And then the temptation is there for David to do that. And he cuts a corner off the cloak of Saul's tunic. And then he finds himself in a place of remorse. He was acting against covenant faithfulness, against chesed, against the character of God to try to force the hand that he thought should be his. And as Paul leaves, he comes out and he repents. He acknowledges that he's offended the king who God has put in place for that time, and he acknowledges that he's offended God himself. Do you have the radical faithfulness to lean into covenant obedience rather than act expediently. In a culture where relationships are disposable, are you willing to have difficult conversations? Do you show radical faithfulness in maintaining covenant relationships in families, friendships, businesses, at church? Let's move on to Jonathan. Jonathan, who sacrificed for his calling. Now, two chapters prior to this, in chapter 18, Jonathan made a faithful choice to bow to David as king. He took off his tunic, he took off his armor, his belt, his sword, and his shield, and he gave it to David and said, I acknowledge that God has chosen you to be the next king. He symbolized that with that giving of those garments which were his to David to say, the inheritance of the kingdom is yours. Now, here in chapter 20, he has to choose to live that choice out, to follow through on that promise that he's made. And I think the choice here is harder than the original commitment. It's easy to make those commitments in the moment, but now the rubber's hitting the road. Now, the path will not only reaffirm that he won't be king, it also means saying goodbye to the closeness of his father, being forever weary of his father's spear. There's a feast here with one chair empty at the beginning because David's not there and two chairs empty at the end because Saul can't be there either. And all this comes out of verses 30 and 31, which we read before. This is an all or nothing choice for Jonathan. He's being groomed to be king, but being faithful to Yahweh is going to cost him a lot. Now, I don't know about you, but I do whatever I can to avoid all or nothing choices. Fear of missing out. Fear of being cut off or cut out of. Not Jonathan. He does what is faithful to Yahweh. And his response in verse 4, when they're setting this up, really says it all. He says to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. Now, he shows hesed, or covenant faithfulness love, for David, and he pays the price for it. Now, now, in terms of broken relationships, and in the future, as he sees his father 
and his line cut off. Now we've got to ask ourselves the question, don't we? What must I give up for my allegiance to Jesus? The cost can be high. It can be relationally high. It can cost us family or friends or colleagues. It can cost us our name or our reputation. It can feel like we're giving up everything at times. I guess, again, for Islamic converts in places like Afghanistan, it can literally cost them their lives. Now, that was the foretaste of what was happening in Jonathan's family life. In verses 14 and 15, and we didn't read it, but I will in a minute, Jonathan asked David, just as David acknowledged that Jonathan had to extend that chesed to him, he asked David, when you become king, will you extend that chesed to me? Let me read those verses to you. Samuel 4, 20, 14 and 15. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You see, Jonathan knows something. In those days when a king's line changed, the first thing he had to do was go and kill anyone who was a threat to that line. So Jonathan's life itself was on the line. All of Jonathan's offspring was on the line. That's what you do when you become king. You take out all the threats that are around at the time. As we mentioned, Jonathan didn't make it beyond Saul. He was killed in the same battle, and all of Saul's sons were killed in that same battle against the Philistines. But at the time he was killed, Jonathan had a five-year-old son. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, because the Philistines seemed to be winning, that nurse picked up Mephibosheth and was running out of the city out of fear of the Philistines, and she fell and she crushed the feet or the legs of Mephibosheth. And so he was a cripple, crippled in both legs. But after David became king, the world would have said, find Mephibosheth, kill him. He's in the line. He has a claim to the throne. Get rid of the threat. But that's not what David does. David does seek Mephibosheth out, but not to kill him. David invites Mephibosheth to eat at the king's table every night. And he restores to him the full inheritance of the kingdom of Saul. He restores Jonathan's line, his name. He shows chesed, or covenant faithfulness, to Jonathan. So we see these three men, Saul, David, Jonathan. And we began this morning by looking at Aristotle's words. Give, a, give me a child unto these seven, and I will give you the man. Now, Aristotle meant this saying, hopefully, but there's a stuckness to it as well, which is sort of depressing. The, the text asks us to reflect on whether we are Saul, obsessed with building our own kingdom, David, leaning into building God's kingdom, or Jonathan, sacrificing for God's kingdom. Now, the Sunday school answer, I'm sure you all know, is that we're supposed to be, we are supposed to be David's and Jonathan's. We want to be David's and Jonathan's. We want to focus on God's kingdom. But the truth is, we also have obsessions building our own kingdom, and those get in the way. Are we stuck, crippled with these obsessions like an Aristilian seven-year-old? Well, yes and no. 
The person that I suggest you most identify in this passage is not Saul or David or Jonathan, but Mephibosheth. We are as crippled in our hearts as Mephibosheth was crippled in his legs. But we also have a Jonathan, willing to give everything up because he trusts in the faithfulness of the Lord. In the second temptation in the wilderness, Satan made the same offer to Jesus that Saul made to Jonathan. All this will be yours if you just bow down and treat me as king and worship me. And Jesus made the same choice that Jonathan made. For us, his crippled children, we now eat at his table. We now claim our inheritance as joint heirs. So from the posture of Mephibosheth, I am more able as a crippled but loved child eating at God's table, an heir of his kingdom, to trust Jesus, just like Jonathan trusted David. From the posture of Mephibosheth, as a crippled but loved child eating at God's table, and as heir of his kingdom, I am more able to sacrifice for Jesus, as Jonathan did for David. Find your place in the kingdom as Mephibosheth. Crippled but loved child of God, eating at the table of the king, certain of your inheritance as his child. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the wisdom in it. We thank you for the reminder that we need to lean in to your calling and we need to be willing to sacrifice for your calling. But Father, we also thank you for the reminder that you are the, the true Jonathan, the one that was willing to lay down everything for us and that we eat at your table because of the work that you have done. Help us to be freed by this, freed to serve, freed to love, freed to be your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.